The following Bible study was given at Athey Creek Christian Fellowship by Pastor Brett Metter. And we're in Ecclesiastes. So on Sunday morning, we take a small text from our upcoming Wednesday night study. So why don't you turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes 7. Now, if you're just joining us, Ecclesiastes, a little bit unique among books of the Bible for several reasons. But one of the main things that I always like to remind us and point out is that there's two books that are unique in the sense of Bible critics. Uh, The critics of the Bible love Ecclesiastes, and they also love the book of Job. And the reason why is they claim the Bible's full of contradictions. And they'll make the case, and they'll take a single verse out of, say, Ecclesiastes or Job and say, see, this says one thing, but the rest of the Bible says something else. Contradictions in the Bible. And it's really just them either maliciously sort of misquoting and out of context looking at the Bible, or just being ignorant of what the Bible actually teaches. Let me give you an example. Wednesday night, Solomon said in our text, in fact, he's given a whole chapter to the idea of hard work is a waste of time. Working is a waste of time, and you work, you basically work your whole life, go to work, come home, go to work, come home, and then you just end up dying like a dog, and that's the end. It's a waste. You might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And that's Solomon's conclusion of the matter, at least in the middle of this book of Ecclesiastes. Question, does that fit the rest of the Bible? No, the rest of the Bible actually teaches that hard work is a godly characteristic. In fact, it says, you know, that if you don't work, what? You don't eat. The Bible says you've got to work or else you don't eat. And not only that, Colossians 3 says that whatsoever you do in context of work is the idea, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. Your job, your work, do it as unto the Lord. And, 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 and the idea of working, well, the Lord worked six days and on the seventh day he rested. Good hard work is actually a biblical theme. So the skeptic, the critic of the Bible, the cynic, would say, see, Ecclesiastes says work is a waste of time. The rest of the Bible says work is important. Which one is it? Well, this is where an understanding of the book of Ecclesiastes is important. Solomon is writing a book disconnected from God. And, and, and the words that he speaks there is everything that's under the sun. The, the translation, the word is secula originally, which is where we get our word secular, which means disconnected from God. And this whole book is about Solomon in his disconnected state from God. And so he's just kind of waxing eloquent on how life is vanity. It's all vanity. It's all worthless. It's a waste of time. And then he keeps saying under the sun or secular, that is which the things that can be known. We don't know about God. We don't know about heaven. We don't know about reality. So in light of that, it's a secular worldview. And so Solomon, at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, he's going to give us the answer to all the problem. Same thing, by the way, with the book of Job. Job and his friends, they argue for 37 chapters about why Job is suffering. And they say a lot of interesting things. But the problem is some of the things they say are stupid. And God comes in at chapter 30 and says, you guys don't know what you're talking about. So be careful with the book of Job. Those 30, first 37 chapters have them saying a bunch of stuff. Some of it's true, some of it's false, some of it's crazy, some of it's impressive. But how do you know which one it is? Well, that's, that's the great thing. God steps in and says, you guys don't know what you're talking about. And then God gives them the answer at the end of the book of Job. So you have to be careful because people can take Job and Ecclesiastes out of context 
And, um, and, and so you say, well, Brent, why does God even allow those books to be in the Bible? What a waste of time. Why should we study a book like Ecclesiastes if Solomon's wacko the whole time he's writing it and he's disconnected from God? Well, there's a couple reasons that I see real value in our studying Ecclesiastes. First of all, it helps you and I to diagnose a life that is disconnected from God. You know, even though this was 3,000 years ago, it's amazing how the person who's disconnected from God sounds just like Solomon, even today. Work's a waste of time. I'm just in the, the, the treadmill of life, and it's all about nothing, and eventually you're going to die, and it's going to amount to that. Have you met people that have that fatalistic view that pretty much it's all a waste, and they get depressed, even suicidal See, that's the problem. I can see that not only in myself sometimes when I have kind of a disconnected view of something from God, but I see that in the person who's disconnected from God. And it helps me realize, man, the answer, you need to be connected to the Lord. You need to have a a godly worldview, not a secular worldview. And it helps you to see that. And and we've been seeing that in Solomon's writings here about what a disconnected... By the way, our theme is being disconnected from God brings discontentment with life. That's just the bottom line. So, the first reason it's helpful in diagnosing a disconnection from God. The second thing I like about reading the book of Ecclesiastes is it's almost a a great exercise for you and I to search and see if what Solomon's saying is true or false. Even Wednesday night, we can have some fun with chapter 3. I mean, chapter 3 of of Ecclesiastes is more popular than you might even know. If you weren't with us on Wednesday night, back in the 60s, a a band called The Birds came up with that song that's come from Ecclesiastes 3. For every season, turn, turn, turn. Remember that? Rickenbacker 12-string and all that, you know, the Beatles-esque kind of band as they were singing their song from Ecclesiastes 3. And, you know, there's a time to weep and a time to laugh and a time to go to war and a time to heal. And there's like a time for this and a time for that. And they thought it was very profound to sing that song, but most people didn't even know that was from the Bible. But then, here's where it gets really interesting. Solomon kind of starts wrapping that segment up and he says, everything, the Lord, he makes everything beautiful in his time. And for some of you old-timer Christians, oh, that's just such a wonderful thing. In his time, he makes all things beautiful. And we sang that song. Remember that song we used to sing in church years and years ago? In his time, he makes all things beautiful. And, and we get all warm and fuzzy about how he makes all things beautiful in his time. That's quoting right out of Ecclesiastes. But here's what's funny about that to me. As a Bible student, what's funny about that is that verse by itself, for some of you, it's a very dear, beautiful verse. But if you know the context, it's basically Solomon saying this. There's a time for everything, a time to heal, a time to go to war, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to... And he makes all things beautiful in his time. And then you die like a dog and you're buried in the ground. That's what he says. Read chapter 3. It's like, it's not a warm, fuzzy thing in Solomon's mind. See, this is where it gets really interesting. Because Solomon says things that are true. But my question is, is it true for him? Is it true for us? The idea, is it true for a person who's disconnected from God or a person who's got a personal relationship with God? And that's what makes Ecclesiastes interesting. You can read a verse and say, is that true or false? What Solomon's saying there. And question, how do you know what Solomon's saying is true or false reading Ecclesiastes? Anybody? What's compared with Scripture? That's the key. The rest of Scripture tells us what's true and false. Ecclesiastes is Solomon in a disconnected, godless worldview saying, well, this is true, and that's true, and the other is true. 
And, and, it, and it can be a little confusing, but I think it's actually kind of fun to discern. Is that true? I want to do that with a single verse and show you kind of how that works. And maybe the Lord will show us some good stuff uh, while we do it. Uh, that's the plan. Let's take a look. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1. It says there, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. Now, as we break this down, there's a couple things that we kind of miss in our culture. Um, The idea of precious ointment. Let's start right there. What is precious ointment? See, there's a lot of you guys in this room that wouldn't even use the word precious. If you did, you'd get beat up out at the work site. Uh, The job site, the word precious is not in your vocabulary. Oh, that's just so precious. You wouldn't say that. You wouldn't. So right there, you're like, yeah, whatever. Good name is better than whatever. But you have to understand, precious ointment in Bible times had great meaning. Solomon's using a term that would have meant something different in that day than what it means today. Now, here's the thing. This is where all you essential oil and ointment people are going to love this. Um, (laughs) And and it's kind of funny because I'm not into ointments. Uh, They kind of irritate me, frankly, Uh, the smells of them. And, uh, you know, if ointments touch me, I get a rash. So I just don't like anything. uh, but, but in Bible times, a precious, precious ointment had some serious implications. First of all, it made you, number one, socially agreeable. Precious ointments? Yep. What do you mean, Brett? Well, in Bible times, they didn't have baths and showers. Unless you were like a king or a prince or living in a palace, you really didn't have baths. If you were an average person, you wouldn't take a bath for a long time, years sometimes. Uh, before you'd actually, maybe if you go for a swim, you know, once in a while in a river, but that wasn't really the thing. And so, you know, you say, well, Brett, people started to stink. Oh, if you've traveled the world, much of the world still doesn't really take baths and they don't use deodorants and ointments and stuff. And it's just part of the culture. You kind of actually, it's, it is interesting if you live with those cultures for a while, it becomes very normal. It's kind of funny. But in Bible times, when you started to stink, you, if you were a person of, you know, society, you would have precious ointments that you would use to conceal body odor. That was to make you more socially agreeable. And, and, and the person that would walk into a room and smell like a petunia, people would go, wow, uh, this person's a person of status. This is someone we like. It was socially agreeable, and you'd become popular if you were wearing some kind of an ointment that made you smell nice and look nice and what have you. So precious ointments made you socially agreeable. Number two, precious ointments would make you spiritually identifiable. Oh, yeah. Did you know that the priests that served in the tabernacle later in the temple, they would be anointed with the priestly oils that had really strong fragrance. In fact, when the Mosaic law came down, God says, when you make these oils for the priesthood, here's what you put in them. And and the Lord told them the ingredients. And if you put those ingredients together, there was just a beautiful fragrance that came. And if some dude's walking down the street, and you're like, that guy smells like, you'd know he was one of the priests or one of the ministers in the tabernacle or the temple. The smell would give him away. And it would make you sort of esteemed if you had that smell culturally, people would say, wow, you're, uh, you're one of the ministers in the temple or the tabernacle. So it would make you, number one, socially agreeable. Number two, spiritually identifiable. 
But another one that you may not think of, but it was actually true in those days, you would make yourself stable financially, stability financially. Precious ointments were extremely costly. Um, Now, I'm not into perfumes and ointments that much. Some of you guys probably say, yeah, they're still expensive. I remember when I was fairly newly married, I was on my way home from Africa on one of my trips and had like an eight-hour layover in Paris. And so I got on the train and went down by the Eiffel Tower and I was trying to find like a perfume shop because I thought, hey, it'll be great to bring my, my young bride, Debbie, a little thing of perfume. And I went into one of the perfume shops. The cheapest one I could find was like 350 bucks. So I bought her a little miniature Eiffel Tower keychain instead. Um, <laughs> uh, but man, that uh, perfume from France, woo, expensive. There was one called toilet water. I didn't realize that's actually real. Uh, There's a perfume (laughs) called toilet water, but that's a whole other thing. Historically, by the way, um, what's interesting about, you know, this, the perfume stuff is um, they would put them in fancy little boxes and containers, jars and what have you, and they would seal these perfumes and ointments, and they would become sort of like an investment. A person would, would have a, 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 you know, even a dowry set aside in a, in, in a form of a, of a perfume or an oil or uh, what have you, an ointment. Maybe this rings a bell. Do you remember um, when, you know, Mary of Bethany anointed the feet of Jesus with a costly perfume? Scholars that know this stuff, they say that her, her box of ointment probably cost the equivalent of a year's salary. That's expensive perfume. No wonder the thief, Simon, uh, you know, or I should say uh, Judas Iscariot, he said, hey, we could have sold this perfume ointment. We could have sold this and given the money to the poor. What a waste. But Jesus knew that Judas Iscariot was a thief and that he really just wanted to pocket the money for himself. And he said, leave this woman alone. Interesting that 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 box of ointment was a year's salary's worth of ointment she poured out on Jesus' feet. And it's because ointment in Bible times would be an investment. It'd be sort of a commodity you could trade. And it'd be sort of like some of you that, you know, maybe save up gold and and hope that it's a good investment uh, and what have you. That's the same thing they use, um, you know, precious ointments for in Bible times. So this idea of precious ointment, when you, when you think of it in that context, it was of great value, and some of it would even be valued above even gold and silver. So when Solomon says a good name is better than precious ointment, he's saying this is huge. So then we have to explore what is a good name. And it makes me ask the question, is Solomon right? Is having a good name important? Well, here's the thing. When I think of good name, maybe you would agree with me that I think of a good reputation. That's what, a lot of us think of that. A good reputation is better than precious ointment. Is that true? Is a good reputation something you or I should have? Well, this is tricky when it comes to the Bible, and let me explain. Um, a good reputation, well, the Bible says we're to abstain from even the appearance of evil. We're, we are to be concerned about what people think of our behavior and what we do, but at the same time, How did Jesus do with the reputation thing? Did Jesus have a good reputation? Now, if you're looking myopically at his little tiny group of disciples, yes. But everybody else, man, what did they say about Jesus? Remember they said he's a glutton and a wine-bibber. That's what they accused Jesus of falsely, by the way. Remember when Jesus went into Jerusalem? The Pharisees and the scribes, they knocked Jesus. You know, they, they, they started scoffing him because he was the son of Mary who was... And they were making the argument he was a bastard son of Mary. That's what they said. 
because they, they knew that the circumstances around his birth were questionable. Where was the father? Uh, and, you know, Mary was saying, I, I was a virgin. Jesus was born of a virgin. But they, they said, no, he, he's an illegitimate son of Joseph and Mary. That was his reputation. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that Jesus made himself of what? No reputation. That was his objective. So now we have to kind of think, does Solomon know what he's talking about, that having a good reputation or a good name? Is that what he means? Well, man, you could go on and on. Many of the Bible characters, some of the greatest, Jeremiah the prophet, did he have a good reputation? People hated him. He'd go out and speak and they'd throw rocks at him. They hated Jeremiah so much, the prophet, he'd say, thus saith the Lord, and he'd tell people what the Lord said, and they'd take him and threw him into a dungeon that was waist deep in mud. Poor Jeremiah, sitting in a dark black dungeon, waist deep in mud, left to die there. Eventually they pulled him out, and, you know, Jeremiah's tradition goes, he went down to Egypt and they sawed him in half with a, with a saw blade. Like, that's not a great reputation. People hated Jeremiah. We could go on and on. Isaiah the prophet, others... Um, Jesus even talked about how you hated and even killed the prophets. Their reputation wasn't so good. So then we think, oh, what, what, then what would be a good name? Well, we know that the name of the Lord is good. We even sang that. Your name is higher than the rising sun. That, that's a true statement. The name of the Lord. Now, it gets really interesting. When Jesus was there in Mark chapter 10, and the rich young ruler came up to Jesus, and let me just read that little passage to you. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. Jesus set himself out on a journey and a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God. Now, some people say, see, Jesus isn't God. He's not claiming to be God here. Oh, no, no. You got to understand what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you called me good. There's only one good, and that is God. Why do you call me good? And he's giving this guy every opportunity to acknowledge him as Jesus, the son of David, Emmanuel, God in the flesh. He's giving this guy an opportunity to acknowledge who he is. And sad to say, the rich young ruler never really did. And he walked away unsaved, unchanged, because his inability to leave his wealth. But all that to say, it's interesting that Jesus would say, good, why do you call me good? Because there's only one who's good, which starts to make me think, is a good name even possible? Having a good name. Um, is, it, is it possible for anyone to really be good? And this is where you and I have to take an honest look at ourselves. And, and you know, we live in a culture that says, oh, I'm a good person. People like me. I'm good. The Bible says, nope, you're bad. The Bible says there's no one righteous, not even one. Uh, no one that really seeks after God. This is what the Bible says. And you start to realize, oh, okay, practically, technically, we're all sinful people. And there's nobody with a really good name. That's true. So, Brett, I'm really confused. A good name is better than precious ointment, then maybe that's speaking of Jesus. Well, I don't think that's what Solomon meant. But here's where it gets interesting. Did you know that the Lord is interested in your name? Oh, Brett, who am I, man? I'm one of billions of people on the planet and billions and billions and billions of people that's lived on this planet. Does God know my name? Well, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, guess what? Jesus knows your name. He's the good shepherd, John chapter 10, and he knows his sheep and he calls them out by name. He knows your name. 
Now there's a picture. Who is our high priest? Anybody? Jesus. And when you read about the high priest of the Old Testament, which is a picture of our high priest, Jesus, one of the things the high priest, according to uh, Exodus 28, is the high priest on his priestly garments would write the names of the people on his breastplate. They had to have this big fancy breastplate, the, the you know, leaders of, of the, of the you know, priests in the temple. And their names were written on the heart of the high priest. I believe that's our high priest. Jesus is our high priest who has your name written on his heart. He loves you. Did you know that the Lord himself has your name written on the palm of his hand? You can jot it down in your notes. Isaiah 49, verse 15. Um, Isaiah's talking about how the Lord doesn't forget you. And he uses the idea of a mother. He says, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have not compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet I will not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. What did the Lord say? A nursing mom is unlikely to forget her child. But even if she does, guess what? The Lord will not forget you because he writes his name on the palm of his hand. What's that all about, Brett? So my, hand, my name is on the palm of the Lord's hand? That's a lot of names, Brett. Well, remember, with the palm of his hand, he can span his hand over the universe. So he's got a huge hand. And your name's written there. If you look at the hand of Jesus, that same hand that has your name on it also has nail scars in it from dying on the cross for your sins. I love that God knows your name. It's on his heart and it's on his hand. The heart speaking of his love for you, his hand speaking of what he's done for you. You see, your name, my name, it's a bad name. We've sinned, we've tarnished our names. But what does God do? God says, I love you so much, I'm gonna wash you. I'm gonna cleanse you and I'm gonna write your name on my heart and on my hand. And how does he do that? How could he write unrighteous names on his godly hand? That's where he did the work of the cross. God became a man, died on the cross for the sins of the whole world that we might be saved. And when he died, he rose again, just like he said he would, proving his claims of of who he was. One of the most provable facts in history is that Jesus died, but also rose from the grave because hundreds of people, eyewitness accounts, saw him alive after he died on the cross. And so while our names have been tarnished and messed up with our sin and we're just sinful people, guess what? The Lord loves you. He's got his, your name on his heart, your name on his hand, and the nail prints to prove it, that he loves you. And then guess what? Your name is a good name written in a good book. What do you mean? Well, that's where the Bible says that your name as a believer is written in the book of life. Now that's an important book. Do you want your name written in the book of life? How important is it that your name be written in the book of life? Well, let me just give you one single verse to give you a little hint. It says this in Revelation 20, 15. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That should pretty much explain it. Lake of fire, Greek word there, Gehenna, which is the word for hell, eternal hell. It's a place of outer darkness, but at the same time, a place of fire. How's that work out? Did you know science tells us that some of the hottest heat that we can create is a kind of a microwave kind of heat, and it burns hottest in dark conditions. That's an interesting thing. But hell is going to be a horrible place, and it's real. And how do you stay out of hell? You've got to have your name 
written in the book of life. Now, we could do a whole study on the book of life in the Bible because is there more than one book? Are there two books, three books? Uh, We could talk about, was your name already in the book of life and then it was blotted out or could be blotted out? We could talk about that. There's all kinds of nuances about this book of life. But the main thing we need today is to know, is your name in the book of life written down? That's important. And then that makes your name suddenly a good name because he takes your sin, all the things that gave you a bad name, and he puts it as far as the east is from the west, and he remembers your sin no more, and he puts your name in the book of life where you'll be saved. And when you stand before God someday, instead of saying, depart from me, thou sinner, he'll say, enter in, thou good and faithful servant. How does that happen? The penalty that you owe, Jesus paid, and your name is put in the book of life, and then your name suddenly, I would call that a good name. A good name is better than precious ointment. That, that is a true statement if we're talking about your name being good because of what God has done. So that's the first half of this verse. A good name better than precious ointment. Now, the second half of this, you might think it's disconnected. What does the day of your death and the day of your birth have to do with a good name? Well, it does when you realize that if your good name is written in the book of life, well, that, that makes a big difference about what your death is all about. Oh, Brett, don't talk to me about death. I hate it when you talk about death. It reminds me that 10 out of every 10 people die. I mean, when you really, nobody wants to think about that in our culture, about death. We don't think about it because it scares us. It freaks us out. Oh, Brett, I believe in heaven. By the way, Christianity Today did a study and found out that 76% of Americans believe in heaven. Um, 75% believe they're going to go there when they die. Aren't you glad that most Americans believe in heaven? Man, I am. I'm so glad Americans believe in heaven because if they didn't believe in heaven, they would be obsessed with youth. They'd be into plastic surgery and diet books and every wrinkle would be evidence of their pending doom. I'm so glad Americans believe in heaven. They spend billions of dollars on life support systems and trying to keep our elderly alive as long as I can possibly be kept alive. I'm so glad we we believe in in heaven so much because if we didn't believe in heaven, we'd be really concerned about the coffins and our cryogenic freezing of our bodies and and our brains and all that stuff. I'm so glad we believe in heaven. We'd we'd, we'd only be, if we didn't believe in heaven, we'd be only concerned about our own lives and our own pleasure. And we'd we'd say, it's all about now. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Kind of like Solomon. I'm so glad we believe in heaven because otherwise crime would be on the rise because there's no real eternal consequences for, uh, for you know, sin and what have you. I'm, I'm so glad Americans believe in heaven because if, they, if, if we did, didn't believe in heaven, we'd, we'd preach a religion that would teach and preach about health and wealth rather than hell and heaven. Do you sense a slight bit of facetious sarcasm here? See, that's the thing. I, I would love to think that Americans believe in heaven. In fact, I would love to believe that all of you believe in heaven. But I've noticed that we kind of, yeah, 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 we believe in heaven, yeah, yeah. But if we really believed in heaven, would that change the worldview that we have? One of the things that changes is your view of death. If you really have a healthy view of what heaven's going to be all about, suddenly your view of death changes. When, when death is brought up, are you gripped with fear? Or when your pending death is thought about or talked about, you think, man, that's going to be the best day of my life. Who would be crazy enough to say that? Well, Solomon kind of said it, but here's the question. How did he mean it? 
we're going to see that Solomon is basically saying the day of one's death is better than the day of his birth because it's better if you'd never been born. That's what Solomon's going to say. See, Solomon's disconnected from God, and so he's, he just wants to die. And he's going to say that several times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. But this verse, if you're under the sun, S-U-N, like Solomon, secular, apart from God, yeah, your death is depressing, and you just die and cease to exist. That's what he's hoping for. But if you're under the sun, S-O-N, Jesus, then the day of your death is, in fact, the best day of your life. That's why the Bible says, in God's view, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. God sees the death of his people as awesome, precious. There's that word again, precious. So, well, Brett, how do we... Here's a question. Why do we as Christians um, not live in the reality of heaven? Why why is it that even some of us that have been reading the Bible all our lives, we, we, we tend to be so focused on this life, this world. Why is that true. I think I've got a few reasons I'd like to run by you. First of all, I think part of the reason that we don't live in the reality of heaven as Christians is because we've got it made. We really do have it so good, and and especially if you compare to the rest of the world. We've just been blessed. You know, this is the first generation in all of history that, you know, that's been bombarded with advertising of, man, if you get this, then you'll be happy. If you get that, or if you have those clothes, or that car, or that house, man, then you'll be doing good. And we've got this carrot of success dangling in front of us, keeping us into this world, focused on this world. By the way, when I go to Africa and visit my friends in Burkina Faso, none of them are focused on this life and this world. Man, the church in Africa, as they live in these little mud huts out in the bush, they're all talking about heaven. They're focused on, you know, someday... We will leave these bodies and we'll go up and be with the Lord in heaven. And they're excited about it. They're talking about it. It's part of their worldview. But why is that not true for us? Because we've got it so good. We're not thinking about heaven. We're, we're trying to find heaven on earth. We're the only people who buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. That's, that's the way we roll. Number two, not only we have it so good, but also we think we're immortal. We've got this view that somehow we're just going to live forever and we put the idea of death out of our mind. I'm never going to die. I'm going to be the exception. And then when somebody around us dies, we're shocked. We're stunned. Somebody died. Yep, 10 out of every 10 people die. It's going to happen to every single one of us. Oh, Brett, I don't like that. That's scary. Another reason why we don't live in the reality of it. We've got it so good. We think we're immortal. But also, I'm worried that the church is dropping the ball on teaching about death, heaven, and hell. I I fear that a lot of times we we as pastors get so into teaching that which is relevant. How to balance your checkbook, five tips on success in marriage, uh, raising children, all good topics, all good things. But, you know, the temptation is to preach to the times, to be relevant. No one wants to hear about heaven or hell and death. The implications are just too radical to bring up. It makes people uncomfortable. You know, there's, a, there's an old pastor, Bishop Layton. He was accused of being old-fashioned and fundamentalistic because he was always preaching about heaven and hell. And when they called him out on it, said, you've got to stop preaching about heaven and hell, he said this, while everyone is preaching to the times, may not this poor soul speak for eternity? That's the problem. A lot of times we pastors like to talk about the times we're living in and be focused on this life. But what does the Bible say? 
The Bible tells us that we're to live with that reality of heaven right in front of us. You know, it's interesting because Jesus taught us this, didn't he? You know, Jesus spoke there uh, in John 14. I love this. Um, This is a great one. Many of you have this even memorized. Where it says, Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. Now that word mansion, King James translated mansion, um, the, the Greek word there is dwelling place or space. You, you might just say, in my father's house are many spaces. The reason I say that is because mansion, back in King James language, would have been like this most awesome thing they could think of, but it's not really the word that's used there. Um, some of you might be, I'm not into mansions. I don't want to go to heaven because I don't want a mansion. It's a lot of cleaning, too much vacuuming. Um, that's not the idea. There's a dwelling place. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Ah, that's amazing to me. Why is that amazing? Well, think about it. Jesus was there at creation for you theologians. You know, when God said, let us make man in our image. Colossians tells us Jesus was there at creation. And here Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus took six days as the creator of the universe to create everything in front of us. And it's pretty impressive, wouldn't you say? When I go see Multnomah Falls, man, he did that in six days. Created the woods and the forest and the oceans. And I'm just like, wow, God did that in six days. Seventh day he rested. 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And the idea is specifically for you. What's that going to look like? I think it's going to blow our minds what heaven looks like. I think we have no idea what heaven's going to have in store for us. That's why when Paul the Apostle, remember what he said? He said, whether it was a vision, I don't know, or if I was literally there, I don't know, but I saw heaven, and I saw things, and then he said, unlawful for me to even speak about. I can't even begin to tell you what heaven's like. And Paul was never at a loss for words, except when he came about heaven. But here's what's interesting. If you watch Paul's life, From the time that he had that vision of heaven and thereafter, Paul was all about running the race to win the prize, finish the the course, fight the good fight of faith. Even his focus was more singular than ever. I have determined to know nothing save Jesus Christ and him crucified. For Paul, it became all about heaven. And even Paul told the Philippians, hey, I, I, I wish I could go to heaven right now. I wish I could just go and be with the Lord right now. But I've still got some things to do here, and so I'm going to keep doing what the Lord wants me to do, but I can't wait for heaven. Is the idea. Heaven. And in Colossians, Paul, he even said this. It's interesting because, um, you know, so many people have made the old statement, you know, you Christians, you, you, you people are so heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good. Have you heard that one? I believe you can't be any earthly good until you are heavenly-minded. And here's what the Bible tells us. People that say stuff like that, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. They just haven't read their Bibles. Because the Bible says, be heavenly minded. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, it says, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above and not on the things of this earth. For you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear... Then shall you also appear with him in glory. Man, that's huge. Set your affection on things above, not on things of this earth. 
And, and man, this tells us something so powerful. It says, uh, you know, for you are dead in your sins, but your life then is hid in Christ. That's the thing. We have hope of heaven because we're hidden in Christ. And he says, and then this is huge. He says, when Christ, who is our life, I hope you mark that one and know that from Colossians 3, 1 through 4. What's he saying? Christ is our life. It's not Christ is part of our life. It's like some of you that said, I'm, I'm prioritizing my life and I'm putting God as number one. Can I tell you that's a mistake? Don't have God as number one in your life. He is your life. He's not number one. Does God want to be on your dumb little list of things you're into? Um, God, motocross. Hey, there's a word cross in it. You know, God, family, whatever your little list is. God doesn't want to be on your list. He is your life. That's, that's huge. And the person who has Christ, whose life is hid with Christ, and Christ is their life, then what do we look forward to? It says, then when he shall appear, you will appear with him in glory. That's heaven. It's going to happen. So the idea of setting your mind on things of this, of this earth versus setting your mind and your affection on things above, it's clear. Jesus taught that in Matthew chapter 6. Man, don't be storing up treasures of, of, in this lifetime. Moth and rust, thieves break in and steal and mess up that stuff. But set your affections on things above, your treasure on things above. Jesus taught that. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, he said it this way. He said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most about the next world. He said, it is since Christians have largely ceased to think about the other world, heaven, that they have become so ineffective in this world. Man, that's true. I believe that that's really right, that you and I need to be heavenly-minded, looking forward to heaven, and, and realizing that, man, the older we get, what a, what, a glorify, what, a, what a glorified state the older person is. We've learned to hate wrinkles. We've learned to hate old age, and we fear getting older, and our culture just balks against it. The Bible knows nothing of that. The older we get, the more we should be feeling, you know what, we're getting closer to heaven. It's going to be great. Yeah, but Brett, the older I get, the more aches and pains I feel. All the more reason to be excited about heaven. Speaking of heaven, did you know, speaking of your name, did you know when you get to heaven, you're going to be given a new name? I'm really glad about that because I've messed up the name of Brett pretty bad. There's people when they hear the name Brett, they go, oh, Brett, don't like him. You don't have to laugh that hard on that one. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, it's funny. We all have got messed up names, but, but the Bible says that in the book of Revelation, when we get there, he's going to give us a new name. Revelation tells us that, chapter 2. Well, Brett, are we going to know each other in heaven with new names and all and new bodies? Listen, you're not going to be stupider in heaven than you are here on this, on this earth. <laughs> I think we're going to know each other. I do. I really do. But we're going to be given, all things are, old things are going to be passed away and all things are going to become new. And that's a glorious part of heaven. The newness of being with Christ and new bodies, new names, and a whole new program. It's going to be awesome. It's something to look forward to. This life, if you live this life knowing that that's the end that's, that's coming, that we get to, that, that the day of our death is the first day of eternity with Christ and to live with that expectation. You know, honestly, that's sometimes the way you get through life is realizing that heaven's a coming. It's kind of the way I got through one of the worst flights I've ever been on. 
Todd and I were flying from Auckland, New Zealand to Los Angeles. And I was dreading it because, well, those of you that have the little tiny rear ends, good for you. But those, but those airplanes are a joke. And so I was dreading you know, the 13-hour flight from Auckland, New Zealand to Los Angeles. And so, so Tad and I, we got all our luggage, and we're running late because our flight from Vanuatu was late. Uh, so the, the plane was waiting for me and Tad. So we get on the plane, and it's really funny. Packed out flight. Every seat's just totally packed out. And it was hilarious the way this shaked out because um, there, were, there was a group of young high school kids in the back, and in the back row, and they're all, we hear them talking as we're walking our way through the aisle because we were sitting in the very back of the plane. And, um, and this one girl, she was sitting there with a big smile, and she had two empty seats next to her, and all of her friends were like, how did you get empty seats next to you? That's just not fair. And she's like, <laughs> you know, laughing. And then Tad and I walk up. And if you don't know Tad, he's a big guy too. And so we walk up and this girl looks at us and her friends look at us. And Tad looks at her and says, we are your worst nightmare. (laughs) And her her friends burst into laughter, you know, like, ah! This poor girl, man, she's sitting right between Tad and me. Like she's all, but you got to understand. I'm sitting in this outside aisle seat. Tad's on the window. And man, when I'm, when I'm flying, I'm like this. Like, I have to sit like this for 13 hours. Because if I sit like this, my shoulder's like a foot out into the, the hallway. And not only that, the restroom, the door was right here. Like I, like, I could touch it. There was the restroom door. Aisle, you know, 12 inches. And the restroom. So I, I'm flying in this 13-hour flight, and as it turns out, people really have to go to the bathroom on a flight, as it turns out. And there's a line of people standing here the whole flight. So not only am I like this, I've got people's rear ends right here, and I'm like... <laughs> and I'm thinking, what could be worse? Well, <laughs> true story. You can ask Tad. Everything I'm telling you is true. Um, about halfway through the flight, the toilet overflowed. And stuff was like floating through the aisle. Yeah. And I'm, I'm feeling a little queasy at this point. Um, and, but I'm just sitting there, okay, Lord, just give me patience. And, you know, I'm just going to, you know. Well, about four rows up, a 12-year-old boy, the smell just got to him. And he's like, Aah! and just all over, like projectile vomiting. The smell, the aroma flowed through the whole cabin of the plane. And there was a chain reaction now, does this happen in planes? Yeah, see, we've got flight attendants here. That are good. So, so here we are, and the smell is beyond what you can imagine, and they're trying to fix the toilet overflowing, and people are just, you know, the bags, and, and I'm just sitting there, oh, Lord, this is going to be like hell, I think. Um, so, but I'm thinking, you know, but, but we're going to make it. We're halfway to Los Angeles, and I just kept thinking, we're going to get there. Okay, it's going to be all right. And all of a sudden, the pilot got on the intercom and said, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have to divert our flight to Honolulu. Uh, one of our passengers has, has had a heart attack, and we're going, to, oh, man, this poor guy, he's got this heart attack up in the front, front of the plane. We land in Honolulu. Now, I, I'm told there's a new law that it wasn't in place at this time, but they don't let passengers be on a plane a certain amount of time. Now, they have to let you off the plane within a certain amount of time. Back then, they didn't have that rule. So we landed in Honolulu. We sat in the plane in front of the airport for five hours. Literally sitting there. Now, fortunately, the crews came up and cleaned the vomit and the, and the other stuff that was on the floor, and, and, but we just sat there. 
and for five hours. Then the plane took off again, and we're flying to Los Angeles. But, you know, people are not in the greatest of mood during this flight. (laughs) We're just trying to survive. Eighteen hours later, we landed in Los Angeles. But I noticed something that happened. And next time you're on a flight, notice this. There's something that happens as soon as the wheels are down and the plane lands. Everybody suddenly gets this sort of light air about them. They're like, ah, we made it. And and suddenly everybody's friends. They're high-fiving. They're actually talking to each other. Like people will sit next to each other for 18 hours and not say a word. But as soon as they land, like, hey, man, what's your name? Nice to meet you. (laughs) We made it. (laughs) That's like heaven. See, the older you get, the older you get and the closer you get to death, you start to go, you know what? This is where we get to go. We're going to make it. We're going to make it to our journey. It's a destination. And sometimes life is kind of vomituous. Sometimes life does sort of stink. Sometimes you are uncomfortable in life, but guess what? It's all going to come to pass. And for the believer, the best day of your life is the day you die. Solomon's right, whether he knows it or not. But you have to understand, the best day of your life is when you die. Happy death day to me. That's true only if your name is found written in the book of life. If your name's in the book of life, then, man, you you and I, we have nothing to fear. But heaven's going to be glorious. If your name's not in the book of life, your death, no wonder people are living for this lifetime and hoping to get all the fun in now. Because when you die, what happens after that? Well, if your name's not in the book of life... The Bible says you're going to pay for your sins for all of eternity. And that's, that's, that's something that I don't take lightly because, man, life's hard enough. But to have heaven in front of us, well, Brett, I hope I'm good enough to get to heaven. You aren't. None of us are. That's the whole point of the good name is so important and that your name be written in the book of life. How is your name written in the book of life? The Bible tells us, and it's no uncertain terms. Romans 10, verse 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart the Lord Jesus, that God raised him up from the dead, it says you will be saved. The gospel. The gospel message that you are a sinner, the death and hell that you and I deserve. Jesus paid our price when he died on the cross. When we accept that gift of salvation through Jesus, man, we have the hope of heaven. And it's not just a hope like, I really hope I get to go to heaven. No, it's the absolute expectation that it's going to happen. We have that kind of hope. Man, I hope you know, I hope you've confirmed that, man, my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And if you haven't accepted Christ or you don't know for sure, why not do it today? Today's a good day to accept Christ, to confess him as your Savior, and to receive the free gift through his grace of salvation. And if you'd like to accept Christ, we can confess Christ right now. And if you believe that in your heart and confess it with your mouth, you'll be saved. And then you realize, man, we're just passengers on this little trip of life that can be kind of claustrophobic and troublesome and painful, but man, we're just passing through. And we're going to a destination that's beyond description. Man, if you want to make sure of that, I'd like to pray that prayer of confession with you. You know, when we confess Christ, it seems almost too easy. But what you need to remember is when Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. He did all the work. That's why it's a free gift, and it it seems too good to be true, but here's what I want you to know. When you confess Christ and accept the work that he did on the cross for you, you're going to know that your sins are forgiven, that the burden of your sin, it's lifted off of you. And man, it doesn't mean you're perfect from this day forward. It means you're perfectly forgiven 
from this day forward, that you're headed for heaven. And when you sin, man, the good news is you can confess your sin and say, Lord, I've blown it again. And man, he's quick to forgive us, start us over. But as it turns out, Jesus died once for all sin, the book of Hebrews said. So, man, you're saved if you confess it. Let's pray this out loud and pray this right to the Lord. He'll hear you. He'll acknowledge this. Dear Father in heaven, I believe in your son, Jesus. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins and that he rose up from the grave and that I'm forgiven. Help me to walk with you. Thank you for saving me. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. We encourage you to take advantage of our media ministry by visiting us at athecreek.com anytime. There we have all of Pastor Brett's Bible studies available as a free download. 